You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues of matter in business and management. Hello, and welcome to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Diane Brady. Necessity is the mother of invention. Whether that was said by Plato or someone else, it certainly has felt true over the past year. From digitization to vaccine development, the speed of innovation has been remarkable. But so too has the disruption, suffering, and pace of business failures. In this episode, we want to talk about the opportunities, challenges, and realities for entrepreneurs around the world right now. So what is the state of global entrepreneurship? To answer that question, I'm joined by two people who work with startups and entrepreneurs in every part of the planet. Kim Baruti is a senior partner in Copenhagen who leads McKinsey's tech, media, and telecom practice for Europe. Hi, Kim. Welcome. Hi, and thanks for uh, having us. Massimo Maza is a senior partner in New York and global leader of Fuel, McKinsey's startup and venture capital practice. Hi, Massimo. Hi, Diane. Thank you for having us. Massimo, I'm going to start with you. What is the big picture? Is this the best of times, worst of times? What's the state of entrepreneurship? Sure. I am... uh... I'm a positive person. So, you know, I believe we are probably at uh, one of the best uh, moments uh, in history for uh, being an entrepreneur and setting up a company. And I believe that for a few reasons. I think on the one side, there are so many opportunities that we are seeing, and that has been accelerated in 2020. Uh, We should always remind ourselves uh, it was a great tragedy what happened with covid on the mm-hmm. bright side of that, there are some innovation, there are some opportunities that happen. I think about some facts. Uh, we are all comfortable working remotely. Uh, Zoom calls uh, jump up 30 times. We have seen e-commerce evolving uh, 5 to 10 years in one year. We have seen 90% of the global student population uh, actually having some sort of online exposure. So there are opportunities uh, in every geography and in many different sectors. So the opportunities are there. If you look at capital, we have always said that capital is not an issue. And it's probably true also now. You have a very low interest rate. You have investors that are eager to put money in new ventures. And and we are continuing to see that. Uh, We see more of a, a jump to quality, but the money is there. The capital is available if you have a good idea and if you have a good company. And what happens in 2020 also on the exit side is the, the phenomenon of SPACs. This is not new, uh, but it's something that has uh, gained momentum. The phenomenon of what, sorry? Of SPACs. Uh-huh. Because that gives, uh, uh, on the one side, uh, more confidence to investors to put money. It gives another exit alternative uh, to uh, entrepreneurs. So that's close it a bit of the cycle. So opportunities, capital, and exit, that's make it a very good uh, situation. On the negative sides, uh, we have uh, more need for quality. So investors are looking more on uh, unit economic and looking for a clear path for profitability. They are looking for the best companies out there. And I'm not sure it's a negative point, but it's something that makes it a, a bit more complex. So a higher bar, basically? That's correct, a higher bar. I'll give you one data point. If you think about ride-hailing in China, the top mm-hmm. companies, they are having their best year ever, although the total number of ride-hailings is decreasing because people mm-hmm. go to quality. They want to go to the best in class, and they will win. 
which means that the difference between who wins and the average will keep increasing. It's interesting, Kim, you know, we think here in the U.S. a lot about Silicon Valley. What do you see about entrepreneurship and startups right now in Europe? On the macro level, I think our track record has probably been less successful. And there's many metrics you can look at, right? You know, if you look at the global or even the U.S. uh, league tables around all the big companies, they are most of them or eight out of 10 of them are uh, in some way, shape or form technology related. And if you look at the European counterpart uh, and the league tables here, you would find that there's basically none. Mm -hmm. There's also, if you just look at top 50 or top 100 companies in Europe, uh, the rotation is almost close to zero. Right, so they are getting older and older. That being said, I do think that we have a great few years now where we have seen a lot of exciting cases coming out. There's some ride-hailing companies, but there's also fintechs. You know, we have Atian, we have Spotify. You know, we have a couple of companies that have now passed the $50, $60 billion valuations. We don't have the 100 plus, and maybe that's fine. You know, valuation is not the only metric to go for, but it's a good indicator for success. And my observation, at least on, with a European-centric lens, is that you are, we are accelerating and there's actually lots of exciting innovation uh, coming our way. So uh, I'm pretty optimistic. If you ask uh, on the highest level, you say capital is not a problem. Well, in Europe, it actually is, right? It was. And we've seen nice growth rates. I think the latest estimate for 2020 is $40 billion, uh, coming into that, which is a really impressive growth rate. But it's still uh, 100 billion short of the US, which is 140 billion. Um, so there, there are pros and cons here, but I think we're seeing exciting momentum and uh, acceleration. Is it the regulatory environment, talent, capital, all of the above? You mentioned Europe seems to be in a bit of a sweet spot where you're expecting acceleration. What, what has changed on that front? So we, we think about the market structure, you know, you're looking at, let's say, I'm now comparing US and Europe for a second, and of course, we should also talk about others, right? but it's roughly the same size of economies, right? They're both mm-hmm. 20 trillion, give or take, uh, if I include UK still in Europe. <laughs> um, they're roughly the same population. We probably have the same number of uh, software developers and all that good stuff. So they're, they're not that different, even though we try to make them. And then we always focus on the negatives, right? Yes, it is a fragmented you know, landscape. So we have different regulatory environments. We have 24 different languages. You know, we have all the challenges that you could look at. And, I, and we can spend, the, you know, an hour discussing all the, the, the problems. But I actually think if you reverse that, you say we have a lot of diversity. I actually think we should take more advantage of these things. And I think more and more of our entrepreneurs in Europe are taking advantage of that. They're saying, well, we actually have a diverse setup, so we have to be able to play in different regimes and environments. So we embrace that. And if you look at some of the metrics around it, I think it's, it was like 95% of all the unicorns coming out of Europe are international by default because they're forced to be. Yeah. Uh, where if you compare to, contrast that to the US, that's probably only 60 or 70%. Mm-hmm. So I think there's also some strength we can build on um, by being fragmented. Of course, there's other things around culture and funding and all that good stuff, right? But I think that even the market structure, which everybody has always highlighted as a liability or a negative, I think more and more people are seeing this. This could actually also be a strength, at least in some avenues and arenas. Massimo, do you agree? 
I, I do agree. The only additional point I would make is that things can change fast. And if I can bring an example from, from a different uh, region for a second, which is Latin America. And if you look at Latin America three, four years ago, there would be exactly uh, what Kim mentioned now. So top companies been the same, not a lot of movement into the top capitalized companies, fragmented market. Uh, and if you look at what it is today, it's surprising that the largest company in terms of enterprise value today is actually Mercado Libre. And it's not one of the top banks as it used to be in the past. And that happens very fast. If you look at the number of capital inflows, we actually seen uh, in the last two years more than five times increase in growth capital than, than we had in the previous years. And that was because of the decision of a couple of players. They look at, uh, at the region, look at the opportunity, decided to create a fund, decided to put capital in. So things can change fast. And I think what is important, and it's true in Europe, uh, as it's true in uh, Latin America, is true in other emerging markets, look at LATAM, uh, there was no local capital for growth. So you had a lot of seed capital, then you have only international companies. So what happens is that all things equal, companies were looking to become uh, profitable sooner. All things equal, they were looking to either go for an IPO or being acquired sooner. So they were more conservative. They didn't grow fast enough. Uh, and as a consequence, they, we didn't have that many unicorns in, uh, uh, in the region. But things are changing. For some listeners um, who aren't immersed in this world, maybe just explain for people, after you get Series A, that's the point at which you really need to accelerate your growth. Is that correct? That's correct. And I think your definition is probably the best, uh, rather than using uh, a, a quantitative metric of valuation, because that's country-specific. But that's the moment that uh, you have a good product market fit uh, and you need to go into hyper-growth. And that's the moment where actually most of uh, founders come to us uh, and see how we can partner together. So that's probably the sweet spot. And i give you a few examples of what that means. One dimension could be uh, go to market. So how, you, how can you increase, dramatically increase uh, your sales capacity, your ability to get to the right client at the right price at the right time in an efficient way? And that's one of the key questions that we get. 80% of uh, startups have uh, at some point external help for questions around pricing and go to market. So that's one important topic. Mm -hmm. The second one is international expansion. So um, a startup normally tends to start being local, knowing a market, uh, maybe knowing a city or knowing a state. Uh, so it's difficult for them uh, to decide tomorrow I want to expand into three different continents and 10 different uh, countries. And that's where we, we help. We have presence in 95% of the GDP of the world. So if a startup wants to go into Indonesia, we can help doing that uh, and doing that fast. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's the moment that they come to us. But there are situations where they come to us very earlier on, uh, pre-Series A. Uh, if there is an exciting opportunity, there are ways we can help. So uh, we cover a bit of a broader spectrum, but post-Series A's hyper-growth is the sweet spot. Let's distinguish between small business, and small businesses can be fairly large, and, and entrepreneurship. What's the difference in your mind? Is it intention? Disruption? Good question. I don't think they're that different, to be honest. Right? I think you can have entrepreneurs, by the way, inside large companies as well. Right? This is about scaling companies. This is mm -hmm. about starting something new and scaling it. That's basically the philosophy behind this. And you can actually do that inside very large institutions. 
There's nothing wrong with that, right? I think what you often see is that the, it, it often happens actually in the sort of say very small sort of real startups and in the very large corporates. The SMEs often are kind of a hybrid between them. So what happens there is often actually you don't get these entrepreneurial uh, journeys to the same extent because they don't have the funding, they don't have the talent. There are many shortcomings, but the, the, I'm obviously simplifying here to prove a point. But I do think that on the very large companies, you actually do see entrepreneurial uh, ventures that are very successful. And of course, on the whole startup scene and scale-up scene, that's by nature the case. But I, but I think sometimes we forget... But we always, even McKinsey, right, we, we, we measure, you know, for instance, the unicorns, which is, again, one metric of measuring success, right? So if you take mm -hmm. Europe, startups, we represent, I think, 36% by now of all the startups in the world, right? But we only get 14% of the unicorns. And a unicorn, to remind people, is a billion plus, or yeah. has that changed? Inflation hasn't made that... <laughs> <laughs> we're, not that, we're not that sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but I think, and, and the point here is actually that uh, we often get these very exciting, and uh, we all know these, they, uh, these are household names, and, you know, and, and U.S. roughly gets their fair share, Europe gets, you know, half a fair share, and, you know, Asia gets 2x fair share. But I think we forget, actually, the quote-unquote unicorns that are created inside companies, because they mm -hmm. are... They, they're not household brands, right? These are new ventures, adjacencies, whatever it is that, that come about. And I think there, at least what we're seeing is that there we're probably more at par in Europe. And this is not a European-centric conversation, but I, I do think that there we're punching at fair share. I want to just go back a second, Massimo, to the state of entrepreneurship, because Kim raises a point in my mind a little bit about this almost winner-take-all mentality and we hear about big tech, we hear about unicorns. If I was part of a team on the ground trying to start up something, it could be a bit demoralizing. So where are the opportunities that you're seeing for companies at Seed Capital to really potentially be the next unicorns? Yeah. So I think in, in history, we've always had this question, right, that everything has already been bent. There is uh, nothing more. I mean, the large companies can dominate the space. And I think, and then we come up with, with a new innovation, especially when there are disruptions. And I think we're st still at that stage. Uh, I think what changes is how fast you can get to that position and what that means in terms of distance or competitive distance uh, versus uh, the others. And I think both of them are really accelerating. And if you go back to the uh, Industrial Revolution, there's probably if you are the, the best player, you are 50 times more competitive than the average. Today, with the disruption of AI, if you are really the best, uh, you can be 1 million times better than the average. And that has a lot mm -hmm. of consequences. So if you are that winner, then catching up there is very, very difficult. But it doesn't mean that there are no opportunities. It's just find that opportunity, be the winner, and be one million times better than the average. So to, to your question of where we see uh, opportunities, uh, there are multiple uh, vectors where I'm really excited. And just mention a few of them. One uh, is around food. And food uh, all end-to-end, -end, uh, from designing and engineering food, uh, healthy foods, uh, more and more uh, people are excited about this vertical, a couple of trillion dollars opportunities, how you make sure that you, you provide the best quality food uh, in an affordable way everywhere in the world. And we see startups in developing and emerging markets. Then uh, on the other side of the spectrum is uh, where and how we consume food. 
and we have seen all the boom of food delivery, dark kitchens. And in the middle, we are seeing disruption in how people get food from supermarket to your homes. And I think what we will see in the next couple of months uh, is a big shift on uh, the fulfillment space. Micro-fulfillment centers are booming. They will make uh, this chain even smoother, even more productive. Micro-fulfillment. That's interesting. If you think about uh, how most of your groceries that you order online are actually prepared, in most situations you have a person that goes to a store that looks like a normal store or maybe look like a dark store if you are sophisticated, but there is a human being that goes there, pick a product, put it in a bag, and then it's delivered. The picking, it's uh, quite limited. What if you actually use technology and uh, use what in the past uh, was used in large uh, fulfillment center? You make it very small. You put it in the back of a hypermarket, of a supermarket, multiply the picking time by 100, and immediately you make the chain extremely more efficient. Mm -hmm. Because grocery delivery has been in, has been very expensive because of delivery cost and the picking time and the picking cost, especially in developed market where the labor cost is expensive. What if you can actually use technology to disrupt that? And that's something that I'm looking very close. It's uh, I'm very excited about this space. Mm-hmm. Kim, anything particularly exciting for you? Well, I just want to add one thing because you also asked about the size, and uh, and I right. think this is an evergreen in Europe, right? That the, the winner takes all. We don't like these very large you know institutions that are too dominant and there's all kinds of uh, downside but there's also a lot of upside from these and we should just be transparent um, around the, the pros and the cons of these and if I, if I take the fangs and we can have many opinions about them the uh, accumulated R&D spend that they have in a year is three times bigger than the the total of uh, Italy as an example or, or the or, or the total of the tech R&D of Europe and fangs are Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, and wait, what am I missing? <laughs> Facebook, Amazon, Google, Netflix, and Apple. Ah, okay. Okay, all right, of course. So, but you make t- take any constellation. The point here is that these large companies, they can buy themselves to momentum, right? And we also see it, by the way, in the pharma industry. Uh, I'm not a deep expert there, but you're seeing more and more of the large pharma companies increasingly relying on external innovation. It's not all, and it's not an aspiration in itself, but it comes with a synergy of talent, funding, um, and just infrastructure around these companies. Mm-hmm. I'm actually pretty excited about many things. Uh, I think, you, you know, as Massimo was describing, there's a lot of verticals where we could get ourselves excited. There's also some of the horizontals. Mm-hmm. I think sustainability is one of them. Uh, And I think there we are seeing a lot of exciting innovation and entrepreneurship, both for smaller and bigger companies. But most of the great ideas, I think, come out of the startup and scale-up scene. So these are companies that are coming in and they are partnering, back to your question from before, with corporates, obviously driving innovation themselves, but then they're doing it horizontally and saying, in a non-competing world, we will actually help you become more sustainable and ESG compliant and all the upside around that. So we don't have the Google, we don't have the fangs in, in Europe, right? But we do have an ecosystem around sustainability. And mm-hmm. the same you could argue uh, in a few other places, right? So lots of exciting, I think, platforms uh, we, we can double click on, but uh, I think all of them will probably grow exponentially. Excellent. Let's switch a little to the advice for people who are listening who are entrepreneurial. I I came of age, Massimo, in a time when if you were really good, 
you were supposed to go to Silicon Valley. Is that still the case? So I think there are a few a few dimensions in your question, which is uh, uh, one, uh, if Silicon Valley represents uh, just one, the place where innovation happens, where startups uh, are developed, I think probably the answer today is no. That happens uh, in a much more diversified way. So we are seeing the uh, more and more Silicon Valley's happenings in multiple parts of the world. So if you are a young talent uh, in emerging markets, your dream was to go to the Silicon Valley. And we have seen this shift of talents moving from uh, from country to, to the U.S. And to, uh, and to the Silicon Valley. I think today we are starting to see more and more Silicon Valley's globally. We are seeing um, Sao Paulo, we are, we are seeing Tel Aviv, we are seeing uh, uh, Frankfurt, London, uh, Shanghai. So you know, there are many Silicon Valleys that are developing. And I think this is a, tr- a trend that is uh, there to stay. The second angle of your question is, if you're really talented, should you go into venture, creating something new, building something new? And I think that is still true and probably even more true than in the past. Uh, we, we are seeing the best talent out of universities. 10 years ago, uh, 15 years ago, when I graduated, your dream was, let's go into banking, let's go into consulting, let's go into a big brand company. Today, we see more and more people that want to go into companies as a step uh, into building their own company. So uh, I think there is uh, a trend uh, for the best talent to get into disruption much more than in the past, but we're seeing for, for them to be more and more local. And I think that is healthy. It helps you develop uh, economies uh, in multiple countries. It, it, it helps you develop a specific solution that you can then export. Uh, if you think about some of the most exciting fintechs in the world, uh, they, they are not from the U.S., although then they expand into the U.S. If you think about the most exciting uh, logistics uh, disruptors, again, they are not there. And that, again, is healthy. It gives different perspectives and then uh, allows uh, local talent to, uh, to stay local and develop the, uh, their local countries. Kim, go ahead. You're going to mention something? I think we were all born and raised and, you know, looking towards Silicon Valley for innovation and excitement, you know. And the facts will also, by the way, confirm that, right? I think more than half of the startups in the U.S. are in the four super hubs, which is Silicon Valley, New York, Boston, and L.A., um, where if you take the comparable in Europe and you define the, the, the top four super hubs, which is London, Paris, Berlin, Stockholm, right, it's only a quarter, right? So, so there is a consolidation or concentration around the super hubs in, in the U.S., I do think, I completely agree with Massimo, there is a trend that is going the other way now, right? We did actually an exercise where we mapped all the, you know, software developers, as an example, right? Because they used to go for Silicon Valley because of software development and funding and a few other things, right? Mm-hmm. There's actually as many software developers and as high quality in Europe as in the US, but they're half the price. Yeah. And of course, you know, as we get the learning curve, as Massimo was also saying, there's a lot of Silicon Valleys around the world by now. If you can get access to talent at half the price, and by the way, just access, underlining, underscoring that, that is obviously a huge value for most of these startups. So I think you will see a more fragmented landscape going forward, also in the more digital world where you can talk more. And I think funding is increasingly, you know, becoming a global phenomenon. I think it is not as concentrated as it used to be, but I think still the, the facts will still point towards the U.S. being more concentrated around the Silicon Valleys and Superhops. Go ahead, Massimo. One consideration on this one um, is uh, 
what will be the impact of uh, remote working? So if you ask us this question 12 months down the road, 24 months down the road, what will be the answer? And think what, what is interesting talking to, to a lot of different uh, uh, startups of established company globally, there is a big and increased fight for talent that is becoming global. Because mm-hmm. historically, you know, you wanted to work in, into a company, you had to move there and stay close to where their, their offices are. Today, we are seeing competition for talent uh, at a global level. You can stay where you are, you can stay in your country, in your city, if you like to be there and work for a company in a different continent. So what will be the consequence of this one is still too early to say, but I think we will see changes. We are already seeing, you know, if you are in Colombia and uh, you are a, a great company in Colombia and your talents uh, will be, there will be an attack on your talents uh, from company in the US and Europe that they can pay much more and you have to find a way to, to retain them. The other way around, uh, you can immediately find talent in Southeast Asia, India, wherever you want. Uh, to bring to your company in a way that is very different than in the past. So my my main point here on talent is uh, the fact that we can work remotely in a very effective way will actually make uh, more and more uh, regions, countries, cities uh, become important for for venture and for development. uh, If I could just compliment one thing. Because yeah, I think Massimo's point is only accentuated or accelerated by the new generation that is coming in, right? They are much more excited about the purpose they're much more excited about the journey and then they move on right it, they don't come in yes. to a logo or a corporate identity as i think we did 20 30 40 years ago the career planning if they have any is 12 to 24 months and then they move on and and this is not to say that's a good or a bad thing it's just to say that the the clock speed of this talent rotation is actually increasing very, very fast. And if you combine it with Massimo's point, then you will really see an acceleration of this. Because they have options too, obviously. Is the diversification of talent you're talking about, you know, from the employee point of view, is it reflected in founders? Because I think of many of the founders typically have been two white men. Is that changing at all, Massimo? So uh, let me let me start with the with the good news on this one, uh, and then getting into your question, which is actually quite critical. So the good news is that uh, Compass uh, is just filing for IPO. So that's the good news, right? Robert uh, could be the first uh, black tech entrepreneur to list. Mm-hmm. There should be more, and uh, so your point is exactly spot on. Your question, and when I reflect on why this is happening, um, something that strikes my mind is that. Uh, uh, normally, if you are an investor, what you rely on is a track record. If you are a, a large company, listed company, track record, you can take a look at your financials, you take a look at the analysts, you look at the past 10 years of history, great, uh, then uh, you make your investment. If you are an early stage company, you don't have that luxury, you don't have a history. So investor, we rely probably on two things. One thing is uh, repeat founders, and the other thing is referrals. But the consequence of this approach uh, is that uh, you perpetuate the practices. And so the fact that historically we have uh, more uh, white men founders tend to perpetuate itself. And we have to change it. They have the network. Yeah. Correct. We have to fundamentally find a solution to this one. And what we have seen in the last 12 months, which is, uh, you know, creation of uh, diversity funds, uh, the funds that are are focused to, to minorities, I think is a great first step. It would be great also to have more investors that are from minorities 
because that will give a different perspective. They will look at things in a different way, and that's extremely valuable. The same way that boards are uh, much better, they perform much better if they are diverse, the things happen for investment committees. And that's something that needs to change. But we are at the very early stage of this shift, uh, Diane, and there is a lot that needs to be done. Well, and Kim, we've seen a push certainly towards women on boards in Europe. Are we seeing more women in entrepreneurship there? <laughs> yeah, we, we are. But I, I share the frustration of Massimo here, right? So, so I think when we actually try to map this in Europe, and it's obviously difficult, but our estimate is that anywhere between 15 and 25% of startups are actually females today, right? And uh, there's a lot of diversity. I mean, we'll just take the gender for a second, which is actually pretty good. The challenge we have is that only 5% of the funding is from female founders. So, so, so there's mm-hmm. a discrepancy between, and, we, and there's many reasons it's a complicated challenge, right? But I actually think what we are seeing some emerging, I would say, acceleration and excitement around uh, female entrepreneurs. Uh, we are also seeing, like we have at the boards, as you are referring to, we're also seeing around entrepreneurship that there, there's a huge step up opportunity and it's being articulated explicitly. And you're even seeing some of the VC funds trying to and not over allocate, but just have a fair balance of not just gender, but all kinds of diversity into the investment requirements that they're making, right? So, so you don't get this right. mismatch between 20% plus minus five are females, but only 5% plus minus 1% is, uh, is the funding of the females. I know a lot of large companies partner with startups to fuel their innovation. It's a great way to scale in many cases for smaller companies to partner with big. What do you find works well, Massimo? And, and what are the pitfalls of, let's say, for example, the large companies that are looking to drive innovation by partnering with some of these entrepreneurs? Yeah. So the first point I want to make on this one is that uh, it's actually difficult to make it happen. So if you look at the pure number of how many corporate want to explore uh, having a CVC or partnering with a startup, then the answer is most of them. I mean, some numbers in some geographies, 80%, but a lot of them look at this. But if you look then at, uh, are they being successful? Are they able to do it in an appropriate way? Then you have more of a mixed picture because it's not easy to do it. And for me, there are a couple of uh, points that need to be there uh, if the corporate want to partner with a startup or if a startup looks to partner with a corporate, you know, things that you need to ask. Mm-hmm. Number one is the CEO needs to be convinced. I mean, the CEO of the corporate, this should be a priority. It should be something that is on top of his mind, on top of the mind of the board. Um, if it's not a priority, just as a recipe for failure, it would just not work. Make sure that uh, the person that will be allocated to take care of this venture is one of the top performers, one of uh, the real top guys at the corporate. Uh, at the beginning, th- this will be very small. This will represent a drop in the cash flow, and a drop in the revenues of the large company. So if you consider it as a special project, you put someone young, someone that is not uh, a top talent, then it will not work. Mm-hmm. It, you know, the corporate should feel and it should be difficult uh, to take out the person that you put as being responsible of this partnership. The second uh, element for me is make it clear what the mandate is. So what, what are you looking for this? Because if you're looking for the same risk return profile of your corporate, uh, then it will not work. I mean, these uh, startups will need cash at the beginning. They will have a profile that is different. If you're in for increasing your uh, revenues in the next two years, it probably is not the right thing. If you want to make sure that you are where the disruption will be, if you want to make sure that uh, 
you disrupt and not being disrupted, then it's the right thing. But you have to have a, a window and horizon uh, that is uh, several years, not, uh, not several months. And then incentives. So the incentive that you give uh, to people that work uh, in this partnership should be different than the one that you give to your traditional executives because mm-hmm. you know, the, what you expect from them uh, is different. And the last point is uh, around culture. So at times you, you see this weird situation where you have the Series A, Series B groups in the company. If you're working, it can be both ways, by the way. The one that says, ah, if they work in the uh, entrepreneurial area of the company and the one that uh, in the CBC or in the one that does partnership with the startups, then I have all the cool benefits. I can uh, go to work in T-shirt and bring my dog or all these <laughs> stereotypical things. And if I am the other side, uh, I have the meetings, I have the reports, uh, uh, you know, I have 300 emails to, to write. No ping pong table for you. <laughs> exactly. So having the right culture, setting it up the right way, it's, uh, it's very critical. So people, mandate, and culture would be for me the, the critical point to make it work. But it's difficult. Now, Kim, I'm interested in Massimo, you too. Is COVID the pandemic? Is that perhaps changing the appetite on either side? We talked about certainly the disruption largely for business, but a lot of these big companies have also gone remote. They've seen a huge amount of disruption. Has that increased the appetite for working with entrepreneurship or having entrepreneurs within your own company? What are you seeing? Absolutely. So obviously our footprint is pretty large. And when we actually, when we think about some of the sectors that were hit hard, so it could be retail or sports or whatever it is, right? They are trying to reinvent themselves very, very quickly, right? Massimo referred to the major acceleration of e-com, but you could draw the same parallel in sports, right? So we closed down all the arenas around the world, you know, then e-sports is coming up or gaming or whatever. And, and we're actually seeing a lot of, I would say, pretty innovative and exciting new journeys there they can never be scaled uh, not never that's a big word but uh, but they, it's very difficult back to rarely <laughs> on the culture to take a classical executive in a big corporate who has been very successful in that world and then put them in and say now you need to scale this thing and it's going to burn cash for the next two years and they're used to a monthly or quarterly steering and um, and by the way, whenever they start, you know, the entry ticket is always $100 million because it's, everything is in a big corporation. Um, so so it's, it's a completely different philosophy. But what you have seen in COVID is, a, is I think, a quite impressive acceleration um, for some of these companies. And this is not all internal innovation and entrepreneurship. They actually often have to partner with uh, startups and scale-ups to make this happen and become successful. And I've seen, you know, classical brick retailers built, you know, e-com platforms in less than 12 weeks. That, that wow. is unheard of uh, two years ago, right? That it would take them 12 months because it would take, you know, the first they need to decide and they need to work with partners. And, but really the sense of urgency has been so high and now they're seeing this working. So they're saying, okay, but how can we leverage this momentum and new muscle that we have trained to building new ventures? with external parties or not. So I'm actually, I'm pretty optimistic about the acceleration we will see in the next 24 months. There is this sense of urgency, Massimo. What advice do you have to entrepreneurs who are listening to this right now as to how they can take advantage of this momentum? Yeah. 
So it, it clearly depends on what stage uh, you are. But a few advice for me would be, one, if you're at the early stage, uh, what Kim mentioned is totally true. Companies probably 12 months ago were scared and were winding down investment. Now they are excited. They see that it works and they want to explore new things. So if you send an email 12 months ago and you didn't get an answer, send it again. Because now companies are much more open and receptive to, uh, to disruption and to, and, and to change. So it don't take one failure, don't take one event that is negative as, as a definitive. You know, to go back and try and try again and try now. The second advice um, is for later stage companies, and what we've seen with most of the companies that we talk to, is speed is critical and it's becoming even more so. So uh, how you make sure that if you have a great idea, if you have a good product market fit, you don't limit yourself to one country, you didn't limit yourself to one area, think how can I do it as fast as I, as I reasonably can. And reasonably means you know, in a way that is not uh, reckless. Uh, but make sure that you don't lose opportunities. So think broad, think big on how to go, to go global. And the last one is, uh, is always there and is around talent. So the fight for talent is here, is here to stay, it's becoming more and more exacerbated. So whenever you have the good people, find a way to retain them. And what Kim mentioned is spot on. You don't retain them today with, uh, with compensation. That's, that's one piece. It should be good enough. But you retain them because uh, you are a great leader. They respect your leadership. You respect who you are as a person, who you stand for. Uh, make sure that uh, your company has a clear view of what they represent on top of just what they sell. Because what the young talents want is a sense of belonging. And this is especially important now when people work remotely. So imagine that historically being at the workplace was your way to create a community. Today, you don't have that. So what will happen in the future? Probably we will see micro communities that forms around maybe a satellite location of a company, maybe your neighborhood. But if you are able to uh, take advantage of this need of belonging to retain your talent is critical. So talent, and I put it as the last one, but it's probably as usual, the first one is make sure that you, you, you capture, you retain and nurture your top talents. It seems like another entrepreneurial opportunity there. Kim, uh, what advice do you have? Uh, listen to Massimo. <laughs> <laughs> as, as we all should. No, but I think uh, just in addition to that, I do think that, uh, and maybe I'm biased, I'm, I have a lot of exposure to fintech and all these things, right? And, and I just say that the last uh, five years has been a fantastic ride for many of these entrepreneurs. I think the next five are going to be even more exciting. And I think some of them are looking into this and saying now it's going to slow down and this whole COVID thing. I think it's contrary, right? For almost all, whether or not you take fintech, you can take artificial intelligence startups, you can take, you know, autonomous cars, blockchain, you know, whatever it is. I actually think that the acceleration of innovation, but also of the scale up of, and commercialization of these things is going to be even faster the next two to three years than it was in the last two to three years. And I, and I think don't start preparing for a slowdown. You know, always prepare for an acceleration. And of course, you need the brakes for all, you know, you need some compliance and there's funding and there's all kinds of, I understand that. But I've seen many startups in the last six to 12 months because of COVID and all kinds of things starting to, to hit the brake because they are getting into scenario planning and they're almost listening too much to the old school uh, companies, right? Don't do that. Accelerate your way. And of course, you need to navigate 
so you actually stay on the road and you, you capture the, and commercialize the opportunities, then it's all about acceleration. I, I think that some of the most exciting companies that uh, we will see will be created and scaled in the next five years. You know, we're looking into connectivity and automation and artificial intelligence and IoT and all these very, very exciting, I would say, functions almost that will almost impact all the domains and sub-industries. So just embrace them and accelerate. That would be my main advice. May we live in interesting times. Massimo, any any other points you'd like to add just to help those of us who are not entrepreneurs see around the corner? Because you're on the front lines where we're not. I, I think Kim mentioned the most exciting one. Um, if I have to pick uh, two of them that for me are uh, really, will really be disruptive, one is blockchain. And it's uh, blockchain hitting the main road. So we have seen it already for, for a while, but now it's becoming real. And the way that is disrupting um, real estate, uh, logistics, uh, how you seal contracts, uh, the way that you store files, um, the way that you validate uh, events, uh, that will be for me a big one that, uh, that we will see in the next couple of years. And it's getting out of the circles of uh, tech geeks into, into the real space. And the other one, uh, if I want to, to push myself even further, it's actually metaverse and how the virtual spaces, uh, virtual realities will finally become uh, a thing that most people will use. Uh, we have been talking about this uh, for the last 20 years, but I think now it's becoming more real. I mean, we see some fashion designer that do their uh, new collection exposed in virtual worlds and not uh, in Milan or in Paris. You know, we are seeing um, concert, the largest concert ever happened happen online in the virtual world that didn't happen in the arena. And so this one for me is an, another big disruption. It will take a little bit longer to get on board, uh, but it's there and it's, and it's happening. So these will be my two longer-term big bets. Exciting times ahead and good to have your perspective, both of you. Kim, Massimo, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And if you're hungry for more as I am, Please do check out the new McKinsey on Startups podcast from Fuel. Until next time, I'm Diane Brady. You've been listening to the McKinsey podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Facebook.